You know, people often ask me, what makes FHE Health and their Shatterproof Program for First Responders so special? And I always give them two responses. First, the amazing and unique treatment that I received down there when I was in treatment saved my life. It is designed for the first responder community because first responders are unique and they need a special kind of treatment. Number two, hands down, is the people that work in the program. You might have a program out there, but if the people aren't good and they're passionate and empathetic to their patients, then it's all for nothing. And the beautiful thing about Shatterproof is most of the people who work in the program are former or retired first responders and military veterans. They get it. They understand the first responder community because they have dealt with some of the same traumas that you have. My next guest is one of those amazing individuals that works in the Shatterproof program, and he's also a good friend of mine, Jimmy Keefe. He's a retired firefighter and a residential manager in Shatterproof. Jimmy spent 27 years fighting fires in his hometown of New Brunswick, New Jersey. And during that time, he witnessed 40 deaths and made some harrowing rescues. Now, we get deep in this interview. Jimmy has suffered like many first responders, but he didn't let that keep him down. And he sought help, and he's currently in recovery, like I am, like a lot of people out there are. But Jimmy went a step further. Now he works for FHE Health and Shatterproof. And every day he works with first responders, putting his heart and his passion to help the first responder community into his work. I am honored to have Jimmy Keefe on the show, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Patrick here. Thank you for listening to the CJ Evolution Podcast. We appreciate your support over the years. And if you're a new listener, thank you. Welcome. We know you're going to love the show. And if you're a longtime listener, thank you very much for making us a top podcast in the criminal justice community. A big shout out to you, the first responder out there, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at, thank you for doing it. And remember this, you were honored, cherished, and above all, you are loved. Keep up the fantastic work and please be safe. God bless. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for that inspirational and motivational message about getting treatment. You can do this. All you need to do is take that step forward for your health and wellness. FHE Health and Shatterproof is here for you. We're going to get you better. Reach out to me today, 303-960-9819. All calls are confidential. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am so excited to have this next guy on the show, Jimmy Keefe. Now, this guy helped me tremendously when I was down in Shatterproof with FHE, and he's become a good friend of mine, and he currently works in FHE in the Shatterproof program, and Jimmy Keefe is here today. Welcome, brother. Glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Oh, man, I tell you, like I said, Jimmy, I mean, you were one of the instrumental people down there. You ran groups. You probably still do. Uh, you were you were like always there, you know, making sure yeah. the shatterproof team w was you know needed everything and 
you know, every, all their needs were, were met. I mean, you're an amazing individual brother and you, you have a background, you were a former first responder. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, brother? Um, well, well, as far as my first responder background goes, um, I was a firefighter in the city of New Brunswick, which is in New Jersey, uh, Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey is located in New Brunswick. Also, Johnson & Johnson Corporate Headquarters is in New Brunswick. Uh, I grew up there my whole life. I lived there until I was 30. Then I moved down to the Jersey Shore uh, for my last 20 years I was on the department and I would commute up to New Brunswick to go to work. But I'm initially from New Brunswick. I was born and raised in that city. Um, My grandfather was a uh, attorney who had a law firm and became a judge and uh, Middlesex County Courthouse is also in New Brunswick. Um, So my family was involved in, uh, you know, with with my grandfather being a judge, I had three uncles that were cops. My father and his first cousin were firemen. At, and at one point, I had 23 members of my family oh my that God. worked for the city of New Brunswick, where I. <laughs> so you if know, you ever had a problem, Jimmy, career. you just let me call one of my let me get my Rolodex out yeah, and call somebody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, to carry the tradition on, my oldest son is actually in his fourth year as a New Brunswick firefighter. Awesome. And my third son's taking the test on December 3rd. Awesome. But um, how I got involved with uh, peer coordination, I, I, I was really inspired uh, personally by what happened to my father at the end of his firefighting career. You know, he suffered from alcoholism mm-hmm. and was an alcoholic uh, my entire life, his entire life. And uh, so he got in some trouble at the end of his career in his 24th year. He showed up at work drunk and uh you know, they called him into office. And back then you didn't take a sick day for like 15, sure. 18 years. So my, my, he had like 400 sick days in the bank and uh, he needed 180. And they ended up uh, the city that I worked for had my dad sign off on all this sick time. And they put him out in 24 years, but they gave him that extra year, but they got him for a year's worth of pay when he left. So that kind of motivated me to try to want to protect people so that, you know, when they're running into problems and they're having issues that they don't get taken advantage of. So that, that was the initial inspiration for me to be involved with uh, my union. I served as a union president in my department for 12 years. Um, Then I went from being a union president in the New Brunswick fire department, local 17 to being a peer assistance coordinator for the New Jersey State FNBA, which is the uh, firefighters union for the Mm -hmm. state of New Jersey. And uh, so I had a state position and I facilitated treatment for roughly 11 years. And um, eight years into that, I I went through a divorce and I was having a really tough time. And, you know, I I was emotionally, I, I, I was having suicidal ideation, homicidal thoughts, Um, and these thoughts took over and I couldn't get them out of my head. And, uh, you know, after being a person who, you know, encouraged people to go get help and get treatment for years and years and years, I found myself in a position as the guy that sent people to treatment, needing treatment myself. And, uh, you know, I said to myself that, you know, I've been encouraging people for eight years to get help when they need help. Now I need help and I'm not going to get help. Yeah. So I actually, you know, on uh, October 19th of 2018, I I called uh, my peer rep, Tyrone Smith, that works with me. And he picked me up and he actually flew me down to Shatterproof. And, uh, you know, I entered the program and went through the program myself. So I spent 48 days there as a patient. Um, you know, I did all the neurostimulation. I did all, you know, the bio bed, the breath therapy, the massage, the chiropractor, um, you know, the beach trips. And, and I really got to experience the community and the support that you get from each other when you were there. And it's such, a, that, as you know, it's such a unique yeah. community when you're sitting in a treatment center and, you're, and there's 40 other guys that work in the field that you work in and see and experience the things that you see and you're able to relate to each other. And that provided a level of comfort for me 
that I was able to trust and talk about everything that I needed to talk about in order to, you know, deal with what I was going through at the time. And what I was going through at the time was a divorce. Um, I, I had been a single guy with a full custody of five kids. And, you know, so I raised those kids from two different mothers, basically by myself. Wow. And I had gotten married, you know, years and years into that. And so when I got married and I started going through the divorce, you know, I had to buy my wife out of a house that she didn't oh, pay for. Yeah. I had to, you know, I had financially, you know, child support. Tough. Yeah. I, I, I had to fight for what part of my pension I was going to keep. And while I was going through all that stuff, it was so overwhelming and the thoughts just became unbearable and I couldn't stop my mind from being hypervigilant and trying to think out a million different processes of what to do. And, you know, when I first got to Shatterproof, I was literally, my nerves were so, I, I had thought that I'd gotten to the point that I was literally going to lose my mind. And mm -hmm. uh, when I felt that shaky and that uncomfortable and that bad was when I finally said, you know what, I need to get some help. I need to yeah. go down there myself. So I, I made the call, you know, I got flown down there by a guy that I'd worked with for years. And um, when I got to the program, uh, the head of the program at the time was a lady named Manny Waymer, and she became my therapist. So I, I worked a lot one-on-one -on -one with her and she did tons and tons and tons of work with me. Um, you know, handouts on financial spending, handouts on sexual narcissism, um, you know, sex addiction, gambling, like every possible thing that I can look at that I might have possibly had a problem with and was contributing to my condition was dealt with when I was there. Okay. And, um, you know, so in that time, you know, I, I walked in the door and I was so bad when I got there. And, and like yourself, you know, when you leave, I was in, in so much of a better condition that I, 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 I made peace with the fact that I was getting divorced. I made peace with the yeah. fact that I had to sell my house. I made peace with the fact that I needed to step down from being a union president at my job because of the amount of hours and time and, you know, the other commitments I had. I was coaching football. I was even your president, I was a peer coordinator. And I had so much stuff on my plate that I, I had forgotten, you know, about myself. And I was walking through life and taking care of all these responsibilities absolutely, and yeah. all these things. And I was doing absolutely nothing for my mental health, for myself, uh, all hobbies and fun things I had, you know, loved and enjoyed when I was younger, like athletics, working out going to the beach, riding motorcycles, playing, playing basketball, like anything that brought me joy and enjoyment, I didn't do any of it anymore. So yeah. I had gotten to the point where I was just going through the regimen of life. And, you know, with all my kids and all my responsibilities, you know, this game this weekend, this game that day, I had just gotten so overwhelmed with life that like I didn't exist in my own life anymore. Yeah. So when I was down there, I was able to take a look at just the mass amount of responsibility and things that I had to do. And, um, you know, while I was there, I, I, I really made a decision to make, you know, some extreme changes. I, I made the decision to definitely get divorced. I made the decision to sell my house. I made the decision to uh, get divorced, sell my house, step down as the union president. Uh, one thing that I wanted to stay involved in because I knew it'd be great for my recovery was the peer assistance coordinating mm -hmm. that I was doing for the state FMBA and helping people. And, uh, you know, so I stepped away from the coaching, the union president, uh, all the other things that were going on. In a, and then I stayed and dedicated myself into the uh, peer coordination and assisting others that were going through what I went through. And, you know, it, it inspired me because I was helping other people. And, and and it was very similar to the feeling that I got when I was a firefighter and going through the front door and putting a fire yeah. out and saving somebody's house that didn't burn to the ground and mm -hmm. <clears throat> getting people out that might have been trapped in the building. And, and you have such a feeling of fulfillment because you're helping yeah. as a first responder and I got that same feeling from helping other people. And, and I knew I was getting up in age. I was, 
you know, in my 24th year in the fire department, I only needed one more year to make pension. I ended up staying uh, through 27 years and then uh, retiring February of 2021 to work full time down yeah. at Shatterproof, which I started uh, March 2nd, a month after I retired. I ended up moving down to Florida and starting. But, uh, you know, the reason it, there was a lot of personal reasons why I got involved in the first place. Uh, my father's situation. Uh, so what ended up happening to my father is uh, he went to see my brother's newborn baby in the hospital and he was drunk. And my brother told him, you'll never touch my child in the condition you're in. And he was so upset by that, that my father went home and tried to detox himself in his living room. Oh. So four days later, I found him and he had a stroke and he had major brain damage and he spent the last 10 years of his life in uh a place called the New Jersey State uh, Fireman's Home, which is a nursing home that's federally funded for anybody who has served as a firefighter in the state of New Jersey. So my dad, what happened with him, how he left the job two years later, ending up in a nursing home. Um, you know, so for 10 years, he was in a nursing home and I'm bringing yeah. my kids to see my father. And, you know, he can't remember my kids' names. Oh. He's asking me the same questions over and over the whole time we were there. The funny thing about it is when he went into the nursing home, I had three kids and then I had two more kids <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I would bring the five kids to the nursing home to see my dad. And he would just look at all the kids and go, are all these kids yours? But because he had brain damage yeah, from the yeah. stroke, he would look at me like every three minutes and ask that same question. Yeah, so he yeah. asked me that question 40 times yeah. when I was there. And, you know, he had his room and the people at that nursing home were great. And they took yeah. it, it was probably the cleanest nursing home I've ever been in in my life. And they really do a good job of like, you know, helping the guys that need to be in there in the condition they're in. And it, it was just really sad to yeah. me that like the matriarch of my family, you know, sitting in a jerry chair outside the nurse's station, he doesn't even know where he is. Yeah. And, you know, so a, a lot of times, you know, when we're going through what we go through and, and there's drinking and addiction and gambling and everything that can cause us problems, we always think, you know, well, who's it going to hurt if I die or who's it going to hurt oh, if this hurts I'm everybody around myself, you. but everybody around you gets hurt and everybody gets affected. And, and you know, because of that, what happened with him, I wanted to break the pattern of those type of things and make sure that that didn't happen to me and that my kids didn't have to bring my yeah. grandchildren to me while I'm sitting in their nursing home and don't know who they are. So yeah. I had a real lot of uh, personal motivation. I mean, my first wife um, ended up, we were together six, I had three kids. They were six, four and two. I was married for seven years. Uh, we got divorced and she you know, drank and did certain things. And then she ended up getting hooked on opiates and becoming an opiate addicted addict and basically abandoned my first three children, her children, and hasn't, you know, in the last 23 years that from when that happened to now, she's probably seen them five of 23 years, you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, addiction, alcoholism, you know, uh, PTSD, everything has so influenced my life and uh you know going back to my, everything began as a child so when I was a child in the house that I grew up in was very abusive father was physically abusive to my mother was physically abusive to me and my brother uh mentally abusive he was the drunk guy that told the same story at the kitchen table sure. after night you know hitting his fist on the table and you know, all that type of stuff till when it escalated to actual violence. Uh, I, I seen my mother bloodied 15 to 20 times in my life, you know, ambulance taking her to the hospital. We moved with my grandfather for a year. So there was so much early childhood trauma, you know, that I was affected by um, that really put me in a position where I viewed myself as less than other kids. You know, my mm. mom was mentally ill, uh, you know, she went to the bathroom on herself. Uh, she didn't pay attention. She, you know, talked out of turn and didn't say the right things. And, mm -hmm. you know, as a kid, I was embarrassed by that. Sure. And then dad shows up and he's drunk and you're doubly embarrassed. So mm -hmm. you go through your whole childhood thinking there's something wrong, you know. 
Why am I in this situation? Why is this happening to me? So you feel a certain way about yourself and you bring that into your adult life. And, and as much as, you know, we want to like change our path and do something different, you know, I ended up trying to have the perfect family and be the perfect father and do the perfect thing. So my kids didn't have any kind of experiences like I did as a child. So sure. my childhood was always on my mind, always in yeah. my head, always a part of it. And it was the trauma that was involved in that. So that's one type of trauma. And then uh, when I became a firefighter, I was uh, on the job for nine months. And in my ninth month, we had a fire with victims trapped. And I found a five-year-old girl trapped in an upstairs bedroom. Um, that uh, She was playing with matches with her two uh, siblings and the matches caught her nightgown on fire because it wasn't made with fire retardant material because this is, you know, 25 years ago. Sure. And uh, so she ended up catching on fire and I found her in the back room and she had 72% third degree burn. She had burnt nine of her 10 fingers off. Half of her face was burnt off. And when I found her, I was in complete blacked out, smoked to the floor, got her down the steps. And when I handed her off to EMS, she was smothering and her skin was completely stuck and falling off on my turnout gear. I was a 23-year-old kid with a three-year-old son and a one-year-old son at home. And I had, you know, found this girl. And mm -hmm. when I went through that experience, you know, they don't teach you in the academy yeah. when you go to the academy that, you know, you're going to find somebody, they're going to be hurt real bad. You're going to feel bad about it. You, you know, the thought is, is that, hey, I'm going to make a save in a fire. I'll be a hero. I'll get yeah. a medal. I'll feel great about myself. I'm this wonderful, great fireman. And my experience was that when I went through that situation, I didn't feel like a wonderful, great fireman. I didn't feel like a good guy. I felt that I found her in the fire and I condemned her to a lifetime of doom. Yeah. You know, uh, she was in... Um, in New Jersey, the uh, the burn center that uh, is the number one rated burn center that anybody uses for any severe burns is St. Barnabas Burn Center in uh, North Jersey. And uh, so this child that I found went to that burn center and was there for 21 months getting skin grafts and stuff. So when that happened, um, you know, I looked at what I had done as something very bad. I condemned her to a life of doom. And from that moment to four years later, drinking quadrupled, drug use quadrupled, um, you know, spending, being completely out of control. And it was something that had completely taken over, like having dreams, picturing it, mm -hmm. flashbacks to it, always feeling like shit, always, you know, so I had a real lot of self-blame. And then I, you know, was suffering from the God complex. Like I could have did something to make sure, this scenario sure. could have saved her, yeah, yeah, and save her, do something better. And um, so when I had experienced and uh, went through that, it gave me a lot of insight into you know the differences in trauma. There's there's can be a traumatic event that affects you in a certain way that instantly changes your life, or it could be over a period of time of years and years and years experiencing certain behaviors and things that happen in your home that, you know, affect you for the rest of your life, you know, yeah. like, you know, from today with all this stuff, you know, I, I was in a therapy session uh, about a week and a half ago and, um, you know, going through some stuff. And uh, the therapist had asked me, have you ever named your inner child? Because a lot of times today, things will come up and I'll have a behavior and I'll act in a certain way. And I have no clue where it's coming from. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Am I, <laughs> you know, am I going crazy or something? Yeah. But what, what it ends up always being is a defect and a shortcoming and something that I'm acting out on. And it always leads back to that little kid they felt he wasn't good enough and why am I in this situation and what's wrong with me and I'm hurt and, and it, it's trauma traumatic memory from childhood yeah. from being on the job and, and I think this affects a lot of us um, absolutely you know, throughout our whole life where you know we end up in a, in a difficult situation or something that's outside of your normal everyday basic generic stuff that you do 
and it's a problem or something where you have to make a decision and it's going to affect you personally. And that's when I find myself going back to being immature, being short tempered. Uh, but at least you can, but at least you can recognize it. Jim. I'm, I'm starting, you know, yeah. four, four years after being treatment and hundreds of meetings, therapy sessions, yeah, yeah. everything else, you know, over time, I'm getting to the point where at least I can identify yeah, exactly. this. You know, I, when I get a flip in my stomach, I know that that means something's wrong and, and I have to address something's going on. Like I, it never comes from my head in my like clear, it's, it's not a smart thing. It's, it's a feeling, it's a spiritual thing. Yeah. And when your stomach starts flipping, that's when I recognize myself getting back to being that hurt little kid again, Yeah. you yeah. know, which today is healed uh, a thousand times more than you know four years ago or 20 years ago because like you said a, a big part of it is being able to identify what you're doing and why and to understand the emotions and feelings and identify the emotion and call it for what it is you know yeah i feel unsafe because of this you know what i mean and and being able to identify you know why you're feeling unsafe or what's going on with you what the feeling is and is it valid or is it just a, tr a trauma memory that you're acting in a certain way because of something that's happened in your past that yeah. may affect you your whole life? But the key to it, I feel, is being able to recognize and see Absolutely. when these things are happening and understand these feelings are coming up. And, uh, you know, like we said, when we we're down to treatment, you know. A group is much stronger than one person by himself. And that's why, you know, the Shatterproof program works so well, because it's such a big group of guys and everybody's in support of each other. And, you know, when you leave Shatterproof, how do you continue that? How do you, you know, keep it going? How do you build your, you know, your camp so that you can be protected with all the people that are there to protect you? And it's, you know, when you feel yourself getting into the crazy or the crazy coming into your head and, you know, you're not thinking rationally, the key to that is talking to somebody else, Absolutely. telling on yourself and letting them, let somebody know what's going I'm on still, and you're good. You I'm know? still in contact with people I was in treatment with, Jimmy. I mean, I, yeah. there's a big, I mean, a lot of people do, you know, that down at Shadowproof, oh, yeah. they exchange information, all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm still yeah. in contact with like 15 yeah. people that were, I was in treatment with. Nice. And we, it's, we, it's funny that you say that because I still talk to five guys from four yes. years ago that I was at Shatterproof with. And two were in FHE Health and weren't even Shatterproof guys. This guy, Dave, and this guy, Mike, yeah. that, you know, I just made friends with when I was down there. And then I have a guy, Scott Anthony and Big Anthony that I talk to all the time. And like, those are five guys I probably talk to like once every couple of weeks, you know what I mean? But, and stay in touch and it's helpful, you know? Yeah, and you, and you, you said it, there's strength in a group. Look, you're, I tell people you're oh, not yeah. an Island, you know, you're not no. an Island. I mean, you can't do it alone. Oh, you can try. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you can try to do it alone. Like yeah, we all try to it do doesn't it. doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. And you, and, and what do you think, Jimmy, you were a fireman, you were in the first responder field for a long time. I mean, do you think we're getting better in, in the first responder community? I know it's kind I, of a broad question with like coming I, well, forward and saying, I look, I need help. I definitely think we're getting better. I think we were in a position where we were, we were just very awful and bad at offering people help. And I think one of the part of part of that problem is that, you know, we get stuck in uh, don't be a rat. Yeah. Don't tell on this. You better take care of this guy. He's your brother. Watch his back. But in doing that, we're supposed to watch their back in a healthy way. And sometimes watching somebody's back is when you see them in trouble, identifying they're in trouble and, and confronting it. And I think in the first responder community, we don't confront each other because it, it's it's something that's uncomfortable to us. Uh, sign you know, of weakness. It, 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 yeah, sign of weakness, this and that. And in my department, in New Brunswick Fire Department in New Jersey, I spent 27 years as a firefighter there. I had nine active duty firefighters, chief, captain, firefighter, it didn't matter what rank it was, that died as a direct result of drinking and using drugs. So over my career, that's one guy every three years. And it was a hundred man department. 10% wow. of the guys I worked with in my 27 year career were dead. 
You know what I mean? And until the end, so the last like three or four years of my career, we had a guy die on a cocaine overdose. He, you know, had a heart attack. And then we had another guy die from opiates or from stopping his heart from taking the opiates. And these two guys died within a nine, nine, nine month period of time. And they were like number seven and number eight that died in, in the life of my career. And at that point, you know, with, mom's crying and kids crying at funerals mm-hmm. and repasses and you know department funeral for an active member the guy started really taking a look at that these two guys most likely that may not have been their fate if they were confronted when we first found out about the problem but they had spent years and years and years you know coming late to work having a guy cover for an hour and a half because they were late because they're hungover or, you know, and we do all these things to help our brother out, but in the end, we're really not helping our brother out. And both of these guys that died from, you know, the cocaine and and the opiates could have maybe lived if they lost their job three years earlier. And that that's a fact that we don't want to look at because you know, in our community, with our unions, with our protections and the things we do, we're, we're very protective and very protective over each other. But sometimes we're so protective and we're trying to help people so much that we're absolutely. Yeah, it's a them. detriment. Yeah. And, and, and when it comes to alcoholism and addiction and um, things like that, if you enable a guy to keep a very well paying job that is doing a lot of heavy drugs, you're going to kill him. And and I think in our industry, we haven't drawn the line in the sand yet. We we haven't made our mark and said, you do this, that's crossing that line. We have to address it. You have to go to treatment. There is no if, answer, buts. And I don't think people are confronted because of the family closeness that the, you know, department barbecue, the department Christmas party, department Halloween party, the retirement dinners, like we become so closely knitted in Mm -hmm. my department, you know, everybody that retired had a dinner every, every year we did a barbecue every Christmas, we had a big Christmas party and everybody was very friendly with each other. And they're like, almost like not another employee, like a best friend. Yeah. So when you're, you're looking at a best friend, you're, you're not, you know, going to get him in trouble at work and get Absolutely. him suspended two weeks without pay and not be able to pay his mortgage this month. And we're worried about those things instead of saving lives. And there's a certain line in the sand that, you know, we have to figure out where to paint that line with people. And when is too much, too much? When do you confront somebody? When do you say something? And uh, usually they say, if your addiction and your alcoholism and your depression or your PTSD is showing up at work, it's been a problem for two years. So by the time it shows up at work, it's been a problem for a while already. Mm-hmm. And I, I think people are, aren't educated to understand these, you know, true signs of somebody really being in trouble. And when they show up at work or they come into work and they're reeking like alcohol and they're, you know, sniffling and blowing their nose all day because they're cranking down lines the night before, yeah. and, you know, to, to think that this stuff does, it's part of America, like drugs, alcohol, the, the party is all part of, you know, what Americans do more than sure. any other country in the yeah. world. So for us to, you know, be ignorant and say it doesn't exist and don't have a plan to deal with when somebody has a problem with it is a, is the biggest yeah. part of the problem. But we know? can't, we, but we can't sustain this. No, no, we can't, not. we can't no. keep going down. You know, the stats, no. Jimmy, like what, oh, 40, 40% or something first responders are suffering from oh, yeah. mental yeah, health addiction. Well, and that's the number we yeah. know about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they say the first responder community is three times uh, worse than your general population community or somebody that's in a nine to five job Monday through Friday in a cubicle because they're not seeing what we see. We see more death, more strife, more problems in one year than most people see in a lifetime. And because of that, we're three times as likely. So the uh, national average is 7% of the population has a problem with drugs and alcohol. In the first responder community, it's 21% have an absolute problem Mm -hmm. and then if you look at you know the population that would be drinking and recreationally using drugs and stuff like that that's when we get up into the 40 to 50 percent of 
all of the departments, you know, everything's a drinking event. Everything's a meetup at a bar after a shift to deal with a tough call. Everything is centered in that environment once we're off of work. You yeah. know, what do we do when we leave the firehouse after a bad Maybe, fire? Yeah. We go to the bar the next day. We had a fire. We go have drinks, you know. Yeah. And that's how you deal with things. And it's a big part of our community. But, you know, it's something that is getting better. And I do believe that, you know, there is a lot of awareness on what's happening due to the death. I, yeah. I, I think because, you know, we're shocked enough when we deal with death at work. And then when we start dealing with death at work and it's our co-workers, you know, it's really starting to light a fire under some people's asses to yeah, you know, start doing something and have a protocol in place on how to deal with these issues yeah. and problems, you know? Yeah. Um, and the one thing I liked what you, when I was down in treatment, Jimmy, you know this. Yeah. And a lot of people listening. I mean, you know, when you're, when I was in treatment, it was like, okay, I'm in my bubble. Okay. I got Jimmy there. I got everybody. Everything's going good. I'm getting the treatment I need. But the minute I left treatment, I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, that's when, the you know, work that, that's, that's, but that's when the real, <laughs> that's when the real work begins Absolutely. because, you know, you're in, you know, yeah, when you, well, when you're in treatment, you're in a protected environment yeah, exactly. and, and you have the group and everybody's there to protect you. There's no, alcohol there there's yeah, no absolutely. guy lighting a joint stepping outside of the bar where you're eating a sandwich like you don't have to, it, there's no wife yelling at you how come you didn't do the laundry why are you home late for dinner uh change the baby like all of that stuff is not happening when you're treatment and everything is about you getting healed absolutely. and as healthy as possible so that when you do leave you you can deal with these difficult things that we deal with on a on a, in our daily lives like kids work being on time you know taking yeah. care of laundry cooking dinners cleaning the house like there's all these things that are responsibilities that that heighten whether we're going to be able to make it or not you know it, yeah. it, it it peaks it so i always say to everybody when or when the guys are leaving or about to discharge you know this is where the rubber hits the road <laughs> this is your foundation this, you got here this you know you Build were protected here we gave you some tools we told you what to do 12-step meetings therapy uh iop every you know your next phase of treatment what you're going to do and what your plan is and uh if you don't have a plan when you're leaving you're you most likely you're coming back if you're lucky enough to make it back you know yeah. what i mean so i try to stress that to have a plan and, and to make sure you have some good people in your corner that you know you could reach out to that'll answer the phone for you and you know some people keep it very slim and like get a sponsor or a support group and go to AA and do this. And I think it's even more than that. Call your mother, call your yeah. brother, a sister you're close with, a friend that you grew up with your whole life. That's a great, like, we don't just have to cornhole ourselves into one little corner of help. We can actually, when we learn that our answer is to have more people in your life, Absolutely. have more opinions, bounce things off more people that you know and we learn to reach out and start talking and doing the things that are gonna allow us to become healthy because you know sometimes i think i'm absolutely right and that's when i'm the most dangerous to myself <laughs> because yeah. it, it, if i'm right i'll be right to the point till i'm wrong exactly you know what i mean so i'm so right that i'll argue with my rightness to the point where now I'll be disagreeable and I'll say something and something that I may have been right about. Now I'm absolutely wrong because what I did is 10 times worse than what we were even talking about. Yeah. So like with, with me, I, I have to pay attention to things like that. Like, you know, remaining humble, uh, putting myself absolutely. in a position of, you know, being honest, being open-minded to listen to other people, being open-minded to when you think you're right about something, don't argue and fight about it. Yeah. Just, you know, learn to, that you don't have control over other people. And you Absolutely. know, like one of my big things I always say is like understanding our powerlessness empowers us to make decisions over what we have control of and it's our actions. You know, if I'm trying to control everybody around me, my wife has to do this, my child has to do that. Uh, the guy at work, I told him to do this. Why isn't this happening? And, and I'm driving myself absolutely cuckoo. But if I, you know, stay focused on what I have control over, which is me, it allows yeah. me to empower myself because 
I actually can make decisions for myself. Yeah, exactly. Have control over what I'm going to do in the situation. And uh, that one was huge for me with my kids. I have seven kids. Um, I have a daughter that was in the thralls of addiction who um, has 15 months clean right now. uh, That's awesome. Treatment for three months. She's been in a sober house for 12 months. And with her was the biggest example for me because the things she was were, was doing were threatening her life, you know? So in that scenario, what can I do about that? I, I can't watch her. I can't lock her to the uh, chain her to the bathroom sink or, you know, keep her in the house 24 seven. And I had to learn to do what I'm going to do in a scenario. And I have to let her be who she's going to sure. be and learn her lessons, you know, through herself. And she eventually learned. But, you know, I did have some control over. I, I knew uh, what she was doing with the drug use and this and that. And I notified the narcotics task force of the town I lived in and a guy that was on the force coached football with me. And I let him know because it was, you know, and, and that's one of the things like I talk about with the guys like, when are we going to confront somebody when they're when they're going down the toilet bowl and they're about to be flushed down the toilet? Are we going to confront them? Or are we never going to say anything? Yeah. You know what I mean? So in the situation with my daughter, I had to, you know, make a decision to do what I felt was right, regardless of the consequences Absolutely. to her, because, you know, I did have control over what I was going to do in a scenario, not her. So I made a decision yeah. and informed on her and she got arrested and it saved her life. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? And I always used but, to tell my, I used, yeah, used to tell my yeah. kids, Jimmy, I always used to tell my kids, look, I love you. Yeah. I love you more than anything. I do anything for you, but I'm not here to be your friend. Hopefully oh, no. I'm here to be, no, your no, no. Yeah, I'm here to be your parent yeah. first. Hopefully we can be friends. Yes, but I absolutely. but I think that's the problem with some parents is they want to be the cool parent. You know what I mean? They don't yeah, want to. Yeah, they don't want to. Yeah. They don't make any hard decisions. Well, that's the thing too. What what recovery teaches us? There are certain hard decisions in life that we're going to have to make, and it, it allows us to make the decisions based on what we feel is right. Due to you know living a spiritual life and, and trying to do the right things and be a good person and be honest and willing and helpful and humble. And when you start doing those things and you make the right decisions, you'll do what's right in a bad, in a tough situation. And, uh, you know, being in recovery has afforded me the ability to do that where in the past, you know, I, I felt too insecure about myself and what was going on. You know, if I'm drinking, I'm smoking pot, I'm doing this and I'm sneaky and I'm not supposed to do it. And how the hell am I going to, you know, tell one of my kids what they yeah. should be doing or direct yeah. them in the well, right tip, way? Yeah, it's hypocrit- yeah, yeah. hypocritical. I remember when yeah. I was down at Shatterproof, brother, I don't know if I told you when I was down there, but other times I've been down there and we've talked. But I remember I was about two weeks into treatment. I was doing good. I was feeling good. And a buddy of mine I used to work with, good friend of mine, called me up. Mm-hmm. And my last agency I retired from, and he said, hey, man, how you doing? I'm not doing great. He was like, look, a, a lot of your friends here, you know, they know something's going on with you. You know, I mean, because we, we, I told him where I was at. You know, yeah, yeah. A good friend of mine. Yeah. And he didn't say anything, but he said, a lot of friends are asking where you're at. Do you mind if I tell you? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not, uh, to your point, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed yeah. anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. I put my ego aside. Yeah. Now, if you would have asked me a year prior to that, I would have been like, hell no, don't tell anybody I'm not anything. Telling anybody. Yeah, absolutely. But I, got to a, but I got to a point, Jimmy, where I was like, screw it. I, I don't give a shit what people yeah. think. They're going to judge me. I'm doing this for me. And the one thing well, it, that treatment taught me, uh, among many other things, was I have to be very selfish Oh, absolutely. Not, not, not a narcissist or not ignoring my family, but selfish in a point where I need to look at myself first and take care of myself so I can be better for other people. Absolutely. And uh, pain is always a great motivator. And uh, what happens to us is we find ourselves in so much pain that our answers aren't our answers anymore. And it forces us to be open-minded and maybe look at what somebody else has to say to help us. And, you know, when I was in treatment, also, I was in a very uh, similar situation that what you just explained with your friend, with all of the members of my union, I mean, I was representing 104 guys and all their contracts and their raises and this and that. And, you know, when I had come home from treatment, and I, the very next union meeting we had, I stepped down as the president, and I explained to my local, listen, I'm going through a divorce, 
My kids are having a tough time. There's a real lot of troubled areas that I need to deal with in my life. And I need to step away from doing this. And the two things that that helped me with was I, I was cutting down the level of responsibility that I had to other people. And I was being responsible to myself. Absolutely. And, and I was, you know, being responsible to uh, not only myself, to my recovery, my family, the the things that I needed to do by stepping away from some of these. And, you know, being a union president is very ego building. So for me, it, it, what is ego? Ego is edging God out. You know, if oh, I'm yeah. in ego and I'm worried about what you think about me and, you know, for 12 years, I'm doing contracts. Anybody's got a problem at work. They're coming to me. We're doing conventions. People are buying you dinner and, you know, it, it feeds your ego and builds your ego to a place. But, you know, I needed to step away from that job because I needed to get out of ego in, in, in living according to thinking I'm somebody because I'm doing this and, and humbling yeah. myself. So for me, that was a huge thing for me was to start dealing with that ego and, you know, people pleasing and doing everything I can for others and to start doing some things for myself. That, and, you know, and, help, and doing what you're doing now, brother, you're helping absolutely. so many people, man. Absolutely. You're helping so many people, Jimmy. Thank and you. Appreciate I am it. I am blessed to call you a friend, and uh, Me, I, I feel the same way, buddy. I'm blessed you know, to call and, you a friend, also. Yeah, and uh, I love and and tell us really quick. You know, you you're down at Chatterproof, but you recently are doing something different now. What's your new title, brother? Oh, I'm the uh, senior resident manager for the Shatterproof program. So I'm managing the community and like activities, uh, beach trips, barbecues, anything that's, uh, absolutely you know, outside of the group setting where the therapies happen. And what happens after the therapy is what I do there. And, that's uh, awesome. you know, it's from being somebody that was in the community, I could relate to the community and what they're going through because I sat in their chairs. I did the neuro. I did the therapy. I did the treatment. And it helped my life immensely. So most of what I do is just, just share how helpful it was for me Absolutely. and how much it changed my life and how it could change their life and just try to be a, a beacon of light or an example of somebody that was in their position that came out the other side. And if that's all I do for anybody that's there, that's enough for me, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's enough for me. But uh, it, it, it's very humbling to work there. And it's... Uh, you know, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of emotion. I mean, we're dealing with people that are going through the worst times of their entire life. And then they show up and, you know, every day that you go there, you can't be, you know, short tempered. No. You can't argue back with somebody. You have to be, be there to care for them. And, uh, you know, by putting myself in that position and doing that, it really helps me in my life and my recovery. So by helping others, it just makes me feel so much better about myself and makes my decisions and the things that I do in my life easier because, you know, I feel better about myself and who I am Absolutely. and what my purpose is today, you know, so it, it makes things cool. Absolutely. I recently got engaged too, buddy. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, I heard I, that. I think I heard. Yes, that. yes. I got engaged uh, August 19th. Well, congratulations. So beautiful fiance. And, uh, you know, that that's like another thing. For, you know, four years ago, when I came through the program, I was going through a horrible divorce. I was like, I'll never be married again. I'll <laughs> never do this. I'll never yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. But I hadn't done any work on myself. Exactly. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was taught by uh, my therapist when I was down there was to, you know, I had to really look at my patterns and what I was doing in my intimate relationships with women and where were my mistakes made? What do I need to address? And a big thing that was uh, told to me was to make sure, because I, I had seven kids with three different women. I mm -hmm. could not, you know, meet the fourth woman that I'm going to have two more kids with and make all the same mistakes and the people that I was picking. So when I did the work and I started looking at my patterns and the things that I do and the people that I was picking and why it led right back to that hurt little child. Uh, yeah, feel absolutely. Good enough. So, you know, I pick people with problems, you know, um, you know, no car insurance, no medical benefits, uh, never went to school, This and, and I'm going to save them. And if I save them, they're going to love me. But the people I was picking didn't care about themselves because if they did, they would have had their life a little more together and gotta I love your, had to save them. Gotta so love because, yourself. Yeah, so 
I didn't love myself enough to pick somebody to be with and to trust that was worthy of my trust. I, I picked people that, you know, were problematic and had issues and problems. Oh, we all, we all do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So for me, you know, when I worked with my therapist and my counselor and I was going through this divorce and everything, and I was looking at all these issues, you know, I made a decision to be alone for minimum of one year, maximum of two years before I'm even going to go out on a date. I made it 22 months before I went on my first well, date. Well, that's good. But when I took that time to really do some work on myself and really concentrate on my relationship with my belief in God, my relationship with my children, uh, you know, work, what my responsibilities, everything that was going on in my life. And I prioritized me in my life and I didn't start chasing, finding the next one because, you know, for me, that could be as bad as being addicted to a drug or an alcohol, Absolutely. you know, sex, women, I got to have the next one. And I had to address that because that was so much of a problem for me as drinking was, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, so, what do they say? What do they say? You know, what's the definition of insanity doing the same stuff? Make, uh, o doing, over and making over the again. same mistakes, expecting a different, a different result. result. <laughs> yeah. So, I and mean, you always and that's, get the same yeah. Result. And that's yeah. the one thing that I learned in treatment too. And yeah, yeah. brother, I I'm just, I'm so happy you're doing good. And, and yeah. I thank, thank you so you, much for, for, uh, sharing your, your story and some of the awesome. struggles you went through. And I can't wait to see you again. I don't know when Absolutely. I'll be back there again, but I'll be down there. And really quick, I yep. just want to mention to the listeners that Jimmy is the cornhole champion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i haven't lost the game in two and a half months so we got if you're out there and you're coming to treatment you got a good cornhole game you know i, I could get some better competition <laughs> nah, we've, I, I actually had one guy one time that was down there that every time i played him he destroyed me so uh you know as much as the, the well real, it wasn't when i was real, there because you yeah, were you were you were beating everybody down yeah, there yeah yeah this this uh, one guy, uh, Michael C., uh, who was one of the clients down there, he used to play in a club, and it's an oh, I, I, I played him about 30 times, and he beat me 29 <laughs> or 30. In the one game I won, I made like an airmail to beat him 21 to 19 on the last bag that I threw, <laughs> and it was the one game that I won against him. So I'm pretty good, but there have been four or five guys that came in and cleaned my clock yeah. down there, too. So, but you know. <laughs> Jimmy Keith. It's good times. <laughs> Thank you so much, brother, for right. being on the show, man. God bless Absolutely. you. And Thank I you. will talk with you soon, brother. All right, my man. Good seeing you, Pat. Good to see you. Soon. Bye. Be good. All right, buddy. He is such a great guy. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you love the audio podcast, head over to cjevolution.com YouTube channel to check out the video of this show. Please be safe, and I'll see you next time.